0: I'm Aryeh Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Koren Podcast. Every week on the Koren Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off
1: the page. Shalom from Jerusalem, and welcome to the current Podcast. Ari, why don't you tell all of our lovely listeners what we have in store this week?
0: Well, this week we were delighted to be joined by Rabbi Pinny Dunner, who joined us to discuss Jewish history and its interplay with Talmud Torah.
1: That's right. This is a continuation of our conversation last week with Rabbi Beryl Wine, the preeminent Jewish historian. So let's get started. We are joined now by Rabbi Pini Dunner. Rabbi Penny Dunner is an acknowledged expert on antiquarian Hebrew books and manuscripts and is frequently consulted by libraries, academics, dealers and private collectors. Rabbi Dunner currently serves as the senior rabbi at Beverly Hill Synagogue and also serves on the executive committee of the Rabbinical Council of America. His first book, Mavericks, Mystics and False Messiahs, was published by the Toby Press last year. Rabbi Dunner, thank you so much for joining us.
2: A pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast.
1: Um, we'll start off with with an easy question. Um, what led you, uh, to sp- focus your, your efforts on studying Jewish history and specifically, I suppose the, the lesser known elements of Jewish history.
2: So interestingly enough, I came to Jewish history in, in the, in a very, um, uh, ordinary fashion. I left yeshiva and went to college and I decided to, uh, do my major in Jewish history. So I didn't come to it by some uh, side direction, I actually did come to it in the very formal, um, uh, academic way. I'd always been interested in Jewish history, although I I didn't have enormous knowledge in it, except for what uh, was provided to me by my uh, formal Jewish education. But as you know, formal Jewish education gives very broad brush Jewish history. Um, knowledge it doesn't really focus on details and also it's it's done uh, through the prism of in in my case Orthodox Judaism which is very much hagiography and doesn't really delve into details and doesn't do footnotes and is certainly not critical but uh, I went to University College London um, and in fact my father desperately wanted me to take a law degree and I was accepted into a law degree he said, you'd be such a good lawyer. You'd, you'd never lose an argument. Um, you certainly never lost one with me. <laughs> and, uh, but I decided to go for Jewish history. I took a four-year um, BA Honours course at uh, UCL, University College London, where I'd had some of the finest professors of Jewish history. Um, Professor Ada Ravaport-Albert, Rab- Rab- she just passed away. She's an uh, expert on Hasidus. Uh, Professor Shimon Abramsky. I had um, John Clears, all of these passed away. Uh, Michael Weitzman also passed away. Um, Really, uh, uh, Martin Gilbert uh, did the Holocaust Studies course. Uh, I mean, I couldn't have had a better range of Jewish history uh, mentors than I did at UCL. They were all magnificent. And I learned so much from them. So that, if you want, is Uh, Just the information as to how I became involved in Jewish history, but obviously the Jewish history that I studied um, was the essential Jewish history, you know survey Jewish history and even if you focused on some aspect of it like we did with the Holocaust, it was um, essentially the type of Jewish history that one, one would get in a good textbook it didn't deal with the margins, because a Jewish history course at that level wouldn't. It was a, it was a bachelor's degree, it wasn't a master's, and it wasn't a PhD. So I, I was really dealing with the essential aspects of Jewish history so I could get a broad knowledge of them. How I got to some of the odder aspects of Jewish history, the marginal aspects, which I cover in my book and many of my articles and lectures, which, are, which some of your listeners will, will be familiar with, is through book collecting. So as a um, uh, result of studying Jewish history, I began a book collection because it it first started with reference books that I wanted to own the books that I I wouldn't have to go to the library. Um, I've always been averse to having to mix, uh, you know, with ordinary folk. I much prefer the deuce do all the research I can do in the comfort of my own home. And this was before the days of Google. Well, the best way of doing that is to buy books. So I began with a um, with a working library. So that's really how book collecting starts, always, by the way. You need reference books. Um, so I, I began to collect reference books and textbooks, and some of them were very rare. Uh, and I suddenly became aware of the fact that, uh, you know, like with every other aspect of the marketplace it's all to do with supply and demand so you can have a book which is 50 years old which is extremely difficult to get hold of but which lots of people want which would then go for a very high price Or well, we can have a book which is 300 years old which nobody particularly wants or there's plenty of copies of them or both in which case it's not very expensive. So I I began to get a sense of the book market and my interest in the book market began to diversify beyond textbooks and reference books and I began to be interested in some of the topics I was exploring Um, and particularly at the beginning living in England at the time now I live in the United States I was very interested in Anglo jewellery. and I began to collect uh, anything relating to Anglo jewellery. That's how it started. So if there was some obscure pamphlet published by a community, the community of Sheffield or the community in Grimsby or, you know, order of service in some synagogue mentioning something, a prayer. I w- and I would see it in the hand bookshop. I would buy it. Or if there was a reference book, sometimes the most obscure reference books, which are not available and, and you don't find them, I would buy them and I, I built myself up a collection of several hundred books in English, Yiddish, and Hebrew relating to the history of Jews in England. And slowly but surely, I began to go from textbooks and like pamphlets and things to primary texts. And the thing which really um, pushed me into collecting in a major way were the were the books of Joseph Shapochnik. Joseph Shapochnik was an interesting character. Um, he, he originated in Russia. His father was a chassidish Rebbe, but he was the child of, a I think, a second or third wife. And his father died when he was young, just 14 years old. And he ended up in Odessa. If you know anything about the history of Odessa, it was a fascinating city. It was a very modern, secular city. The Jewish community there was very diverse, even though it was a, a formally, officially orthodox, it's a very diverse community, um, and the Orthodox Jews there had to be very accommodating, which was unusual for Russia, but very accommodating to modernity because the city was so modern in the context of the Russian Empire. And uh, He came under the influence of, of an interesting man called Ravrom Yol Abelson. Now, Abelson is totally forgotten. He's is an example of an obscure historical footnote who, in his lifetime, was extremely important. He was the Rosh Bezdin in Odessa. The chief rabbi of Odessa was a man called Rabbi Schwabacher. Rabbi Schwabacher was a German-speaking, formal rabbi, figurehead, but he knew nothing about halacha. He could, I'm sure, speak a beautiful German, and he would give a sermon in the synagogue in Odessa, which was a massive synagogue. It was one of these cathedral synagogues in Odessa, but when it came to halachic issues, of course, he hadn't the first clue. He'd never been trained and so he hired a, a significant Talmud Chacham, namely Rabbi Avraham Abelson, who was a Litvak, and he was a very close friend, possibly Chavrusa, of Rabbi Yitzhak Spector, Specter in, the, in his early years, and he maintained a relationship with um, Rabbi Yitzhak with the Rabbi Brisk, who was uh, the Beis HaLevi, um, uh, Rabbi Yoshe Be Soloveitchik, grandfather, obviously, of the famous Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, um, and or great-grandfather, I should say, and also with the Natziv of Volojin, the Tzvi Yehudah Berlin, the Rosh Hashiv of Voloshin, and various other very famous Litvish Rabboni, but he was a rabbi in Odessa, and he got himself caught up in a variety of different, very difficult situations, because... The modern and irreligious, if orthodox affiliated Jews of Odessa would make demands of him where he would have to really stretch halacha to the limits in order to accommodate them, and very often in matters of heksherim or in matters of personal status. For example, the issue of Agunot. Why am I mentioning Agunot? Because in in the 1880s, he got involved in in a scandalous saga where there was a woman called Sarah Genner. It's a very, if you know anything about Halokha, this was a famous case of an Aguna. Sarah Genner um, had been married to a very fine fellow and he died suddenly and they had no children. Now, this fellow was one of three brothers. They may have been sisters, but he had two brothers. And both of his brothers, just to give you some sense of the time, had converted to Christianity. They both lived in Odessa. And in order for her to remarry, she needed to receive chalitza. Otherwise, she couldn't remarry. But the local bishop in Odessa refused to allow Saragana's brothers-in-law to perform the chalitza ceremony, because he said, if you've converted to Christianity, you're not allowed to participate in a religious um, ritual of the Jews, because that means you've not really converted so they refused to participate in this khalitsa ceremony which meant that she was not able to remarry and abraham Yol abelson declared that um, if you've converted to christianity you're not considered a brother and therefore she didn't need to receive khalitsa and she could remarry without doing khalitsa which is a very controversial tactic obviously that I've not given you the whole story this was there's reams of of material just relating to this particular story. But if you can imagine that Rabbi Shapochnik, Yosef Shapochnik's Rebbe, did this. That's the thats the type of battle he got himself involved in, where he took on the whole world, he was criticized by everybody. And yet he stood his ground and was in fact supported by Rabbi Tulkachanon and others who accepted his psak and sarah genna, I'm assuming, I've not got evidence of it, remarried as a basis of his psak aloha. Fast forward many, many years, Rabbi Shapochnik reached London in 1913, sets himself up in the East End, as many did, um, and he's very poor. He gets himself involved in lots of publishing. He, he was a, a, a prolific publisher of books and pamphlets and journals and newspapers, some of them scurrilous and nonsensical, but many significant. For example, he published the largest ever Talmud that's ever been published in the history of Hebrew publishing. It's called the Shas HaGodol Shebigdolim. It's huge. So if it, the book size is 14 inches by 18 inches, which means if you open it up, it's 28 inches by 18 inches, you can't, it's, it's impossible to learn it. The idea behind this Gemara, that he wanted to open up Gemara learning for somebody who hadn't been to yeshiva. So he puts all types of stuff on the page, perushim on the page to assist in the study of Gemara. He says the Talmud is the center of Jewish knowledge and Jewish brilliance, and therefore we've got to bring Talmud study to the masses. And that was his idea, brilliant idea, but far before its time, and in addition to which, he didn't like working as part of a team. He did everything himself. Um, uh, but in any event, such projects were plentiful, but they never they never came through. He never, uh, you know, went through with them to the end. In the nineteen twenties, obviously not having gained enough notoriety or fame as the publisher of um, literary oddities, he decided to take things to the next stage. The first thing he did was. He said, any rabbi who's ever corresponded with him was part of a rabbinic organization called Mefitze Torah, Hebra Klolis Mefitze Torah, And he was the president of this organization. Well, nobody objected to that. I guess, I think he used to send people money to help them publish their books. He used to collect money for publishing. Or he would publish people's works in, um, in his books. For example, you know there is a parish on the Zoyar called the Sulam, published by Rabbi Huda Ashlag. He was actually a rov in Yerushalayim. He was an interesting person, a Polish rabbi who moved to Yerushalayim. And he came to Oxford, and he spent some time in London as well, to look at manuscripts of the Zohar, And he began writing his perush, the Sulam, and other perushim in London. The first person to ever publish anything by Rabbi Huda Ashlag was none other than Yosef Shapochnik. In One of his books, associated books of the Shasa Shabig Doilim, he published, I mean, apropos nothing at all, he published the works of uh, Rabbi Huda Ashlag. And um, so I'm guessing that anybody uh, who ever corresponded with Rabbi Shapochnik didn't really care if they were part of his letterhead that said that they were part of the Hevra Klolis Mephitsa Torah, because what difference did they make to them? He then elevated himself from Gnosti, to Rab Roshi or Rafaloli called himself the chief Rabbi of this organization and began to present himself as the chief rabbi of the Jews of England, um, arguing that he is much more appropriate to be a rabbi because he 's been nominated to that position by all his rabbinic peers, whereas Rabbi Hertz was appointed as chief Rabbi by a bunch of balabatim. i mean after all. Who's more appropriate to choose a chief rabbi than rabbis, it's it, right? You're chosen by your peers. Of course, he'd never been chosen by his peers, and there was no argument to make on that basis. He then started to be mater agunas, to remarry, on all kinds of spurious basis. Um, for example, he said that if somebody was ill before they got married and never revealed that illness to their wife, that would invalidate the marriage. Um, and therefore, she doesn't need to receive khalitsa from his brothers because the whole marriage was, um, uh, uh, was only carried out on false premises. And slowly but surely, he began to gain more confidence in this. Now, at that time, and this, and this is important, at that time, there was a Rosh Bezdin, who was in some ways very similar to Rabbi Yol Abelson in London. His name was Rabbi Shmuel Yitzhak Hillman. I've just published a book And I know that the topic of discussion today, um, and I will let let you ask a question eventually. Uh, the topic of discussion today is the correlation between um, history and the study of Torah. And this is really interesting. Rav Shmuel Yitzchok Hillman was the father-in-law of Rav Yitzchok Isaac Herzog, which is extremely important because it was as a result of Rav Hillman's intervention in 1935, after the death of Rav Cook, Rav Cook died in Elul of 1935, September. Uh, uh, just about a year later, Rav Herzog became the chief rabbi. The shu'in candidate for his replacement, for Rav Cook's replacement, was a man called Rav Yaakov Moshe Harlap. Uh, he was the chief rabbi of Shari Chesed, and he was the Talmud Muvhak of Rav Cook. And Rav Hillman argued at the time he just moved to Israel in 1934. He argued that Rav Chalap was an inappropriate replacement because he had no experience dealing with authorities. He had no secular education. Uh, He'd never been a chief rabbi of anything but Shari Chesed, which was a shul of 25 schleppers. And as a result, if you're going to appoint him the chief rabbi, it's going to be a total disaster. Rav Cook was known for many things, but not for his organizational skills. He was a great Tzaddik and a Malach Hashem and a very inspirational figure but he wasn't a very organized person. And Rav Khalap had that quality, but none of Rav Cook's perhaps other qualities. And Rav Hillman presented it to the electors as a a disaster. As a result of which um, Rav Herzog was chosen to be the chief rabbi of Palestine, and he became the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel, and the rest, as they say, is history. But what you're seeing here is how a rabbi who is extremely knowledgeable in Torah and extremely knowledgeable in practical halacha, also has a sense of the political climate and a sense of a moment in history to the extent that he's willing to intervene in a situation like this to ensure that what happens is going to have a positive effect on um, the history as as it unfolds. I've just published a book together with Buzi Herzog, who is the chairman of the Jewish Agency and is a great grandson of Rav Hillman, we've republished the um, Drush that Rav Hillman wrote on Bereshis and also various very, very interesting eulogies, hespedib, that he gave, including the hespedib he gave for Lord Rothschild, along with the first ever I would say full biography, but at least fuller biography of Rav Hillman than has ever been previously published. It's a great rabbinic figure. He was the Rosh Bezdin in London from 1914 until 1934 for 20 years. He was a significant Talmudic and rabbinic scholar. When I say significant, I mean world class, which was unusual for the UK, for you know, England in those days. Um, to the extent that he corresponded frequently with Reb Chaim and the Chofetz Chaim, and the Rogachover, and various others, who held him in the highest esteem. Now you have to see the titles they gave him in their letters to him. The Chofetz Chaim, we've discovered at least 25 letters of the Chofetz Chaim to Reb Hillman. I'm sure there's more, but that's what we've managed to discover. And in fact, the person with whom the Chofetz Chaim corresponded, in order to facilitate his aliyah to Eretz Yisrael was none other than Rav Hilman, And in the end, you know that uh, the Chofetz Chaim was around 90 years old at the time. And in the end, he couldn't go because his wife was too old to travel. He didn't feel too old to travel, but he, he felt his wife wouldn't be able to cope with the change. And, and in the end, they stayed in Raden. But the, there's correspondence between him and Rav Hillman about the arrangements. How a Chofetz Chaim is going to go to Eretz Yisrael. Rav Hillman did not like Yosef Shapochnik. Rav Hillman felt that he was a threat to Judaism, not a threat to the community in London, but a threat to Judaism. And here you have a fascinating historical anomaly, which existed between roughly the years 1880 and 1940. And that's what we're going to discuss. When I eventually allow you to talk, that's what we're going to talk about. This anomaly is as follows. Between 1880 and 1882, to be precise, when the terrible pogroms began in the Russian Empire, and 1939, to be precise, when it no longer was possible for Jews to get out of Europe, um, there was a huge immigration of Jews from Eastern and Central Europe to the Western world. So either to places like Germany, France, and England, or to the United States, that's the one that's best known. And along with those Jews went many rabbis. Who were the rabbis? Who were the rabbis for immigrants in all of these Western countries during that period of time? And why didn't they stay where they came from? It's a very interesting study. Who were they and why did they travel? Now although I'm going to give you some basic reasons why they traveled, and then I'm going to give you the bottom line. the basic. The basic reason why many of these rabbis left Eastern Europe is because either they had no money or because they couldn't succeed where they were to the extent that they could, or at least thought that they could succeed in Western countries, or they were running away from something. The bottom line is that all of the rabbis who came to the West had some reason not to be in the East. And as a result, many of them tried to, make a name for themselves unsuccessfully in the West, but it wasn't yet a thriving Jewish community in the same way as, let's say, Vilna or Warsaw was, and failed. And they had to make all types of compromises with reality. Shapochnik falls into that category. He's a Hasidic rabbi who had come to England from Odessa. He was actually running away from the authorities because he was involved with revolutionaries. He spent a few months in Berlin, and then ended up in London. And he failed to make an impact. And he was constantly trying to make an impact. Maybe it was for Parnassov, maybe it was for notoriety, but certainly it was the case that he felt that rabbis from where he came from had no right to instruct him or tell him what to do. And therefore, you needed somebody of the significance, the greatness of a person like Rav Hillman to take on this charlatan who was willing to do anything in order to keep his head above water and to achieve the, whatever objectives he'd set for himself. Um, and he certainly was of, it was of no interest to him if he was compromising Jewish values, Jewish heritage, um, the mesorah whatever it was in his attempts to achieve what those objectives may have been. So to come back to your original question which was, how did I become interested in the margins of Jewish history? As I began to explore this story of Rav Hillman and Rav Shapochnik, and the incredible controversy, I began to understand that there's much more to Jewish history than just knowing that, for example, there was huge immigration from Eastern and Central Europe to the West between 1880 and 1940, because there was a lot going on. And a lot of these stories have significance in terms of halacha. So for example, in the year 1930, a book came out called Ain Tanai Benisuin. If you look at the book, it doesn't mention the word Shapochnik, the whole book. You can look at it from cover to cover, doesn't mention Shapochnik. But Shapochnik had proposed that you introduce a condition into the ketubah that would prevent the problem of agunat in the future. And this was fought by Reb Chaim was dismissed. But Rabbi Chaim felt that unless we publish a formal safer to say that such a thing isn't possible and you can't do it, and it undermines the concept of marriage in Jewish law, that another rabbi will come along, as indeed has happened on a number of occasions since then, um, usually from within the conservative movement first one was a fellow called Rabbi Hudeleib Epstein in the 1930s. Then you had Rav Shaul Lieberman in the 1950s, the Lieberman Clause, which is still inserted in Ketubot here in the conservative movement in America. That is the correlation of history and Halacha. That is how you understand why history is important when it comes to Halacha. Because unless you know the context, you're going to have no concept of why this book was published. Now, by the way, it's presented as the result of something else completely, as a result of a controversy in the early 1900s, 1908, Rabbi Lubetzky in Paris, and a similar idea that emerged at the time there. But it wasn't published in 1908. It was published in 1930, which was 22 years later, if my math is correct. And the reason for that was Sharpochnik in 1928 um, and 29. So by... Um, delving into the byways and alleyways of Jewish history, I've actually come across some of the most incredible um, Torah-related revelations that uh, that one can ever come across because halacha son- suddenly comes into focus, Torah comes into focus
1: through understanding these aspects of Jewish history. Um, I just wanted to clarify, the this Eint-Nai ber is quite apart from the halakhic prenup. As in it the 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 point at issue is inserting something into the ktubra itself to prevent aguna as opposed correct. to the, the, the prenup correct. okay
2: correct but well, the the prenup doesn't prevent agunot. What it does is is it creates um it creates uh, um penalties if you don't respond to a demand for arbitration in a based in. That's a very different thing. And, um what the conditional kutubah does is it totally um dismisses or or um, do i 't know what the word is dissolutes i mean it 's a dissolution of the marriage if somebody refuses to give
0: um, refuses to give a get so it's a totally different a totally different approach um i guess going back to your journey through antiquarian books, manuscripts um I realize this might be asking sort of, you know, which, which is your favourite child? But is there a favourite story or episode in Jewish history that you discovered through reading these books or, or, and manuscripts that one in particular that you, is you could say is your favourite or your most beloved or the one that struck you the most um, or that you learned from the most? I don't think I have a favourite, you know, because I don't, I don't
2: look at books as favourites. I have episodes which I particularly am interested in. Um and different moments have had different ones that have been you know it, it, it's it 's very hard to ask me um at any particular moment what was your all time favorite because there were times when one thing was favorite and another thing wasn 't and that changes so if anyone 's read my book mavericks mystics and false messiahs they 'll for example know that i 've spent a lot of time researching Rabbi of Emden and Rabionis neighborshids. and over time i 've you know, I've acquired quite a collection of the books relating to this episode. And what's so fascinating about it is it's one of those very rare um episodes, sagas, controversies in Jewish life that it didn't end with the death of the protagonists. So usually a machloikas is a machloikas when there's people arguing, you know. Between each other, whatever. Rabbi Yaakov Emden hates Reb and Eberschitz, or Reb hates Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Whatever the case may be, but I'm not saying that, that was the case, but let's say those two are the ones who are arguing. So they publish and speak viciously against each other, and then they both die, and it's over. You know, for example, I'll give you an example where that was the case, and I've spoken about it. I spoke in Beit Shemesh last year. I gave a long lecture in which I included the machlokus between Sons and Sadiger. So there was two Hasidic dynasties. One was the Sanzar, Reb of Sons, and the other one was Rijin, and they got into a massive fallout in the late 1860s. Um, as a result, it's a very interesting story. One of the children of the Rijna uh, went, disappeared one day and ended up with the Has- Maskilim and wrote a vicious letter against Hasidim, which was quite remarkable. Three months later, he was rescued, rescued by his family, and um, he disappeared without trace. Uh, and but as a result of this, sons um, came out terribly against Rijin Sadiger, and uh, it, the fight went on for about I don't know, five ten years. But today, there's descendants of sons who are very strong sons of Hasidim and or Bobov, or whatever it is, who marry descendants of Rijin, and there's no, there's no makhloikas, there's no, there's no existing makhloikas. Another one is Chasidim and misnagdim. So, you know, it could be that a misnagid will make a snide remark about Chasidim, or the reverse, a chassid will make some, you know, off-color remark about litvaks, but in essence, the makhloikas is over, right? There's no real makhloikas anymore between these two sides. The interesting thing about Emden Ebershitz was, is, that the machlekas continues to this day. That there are those people who advocate that Rionis and Ebershitz was um, accused wrongly by Rabbi Yaakov Emden of being a Shabsoi. And there are those who say that Rabbi Yaakov Emden was 100% right. Those, both, there are those who say that both Rabbi and Rabbi Yaakov were wrong. Uh, there are those who have the opinion that you know that this controversy was a reflection of something else that was going on within the Jewish world at that time. But whatever the case may be, it is the it produces endless publications. I I have a polemic that was published in the last ten years um, out of Monsi, what he called a critical version of Megillah Sefer, which is the autobiography of Rabbi Yaakov Emden in which he says the whole thing is a forgery and I mean it's a thick book and he essentially says the entire Sefer is a forgery. There's, rabbi Yaakov Emden never wrote it and it was forged by Maskilim. There's no one writing anything like that in the Frum world about any other rabbi accusing them of having been forged. It doesn't exist but that's because if you hold Rabbi of Emden in high esteem, some of the things he writes in Megillah Saif are so off color that it's almost impossible to reconcile the esteem in which he's held and the things which uh, which he has purported to have written in his autobiography. Therefore, the only answer has to be that the two cannot be written by the same person. Rabbi of Emden must have been misrepresented by a forger who forged his autobiography. Now, uh, you know, I'm going to. I'm actually going to come down on one side here. It's not a forgery, but it's not important. The point I'm making is that there's such passion still aroused by this machlokes between Rabbi of Emden and Rabbi Ernest and Eberschitz. and every generation produces a new polemic and a new, uh, uh, you know, flurry of publications relating to this machlokes, equally as vehement as the generation before. And we're talking about almost, to, you know. To, where are we now? We're 2020. The Machloika started in 1751. You work it out. You do the math. It's a long time ago. So you know it's uh, going back all those years, and yet there's um, such excitement and anger and passion still aroused as a result of this Machlokes. So if you're, lo- I'm not looking for a favorite, but if you wanted to find something which is really excited me over the years that's one machlokus or one uh, margin of jewish history which is really uh, in first of all illustrative of why such things are important and second of all which has engaged my interest uh, you know beyond some of the other marginal controversies that i've dealt with
1: so it's actually it's it's uh, i'm quite glad in a way that you you brought it up <laughs> um, something that i w- wanted to ask you when when uh, you very kindly agreed to join us. Um, was to sort of talk about the Eibshitz Emden affair, the Machlaket. What's the underlying thing that's uh, that's going on there? Um, you know, looking at Sinat Chinam, looking at you know all the things that we talk about surrounding Tisha B'av and the three weeks. Um, you know, are there lessons that we can be learning? We see these men as as Gadol so You know, if you're on one side of the argument, you see at least one of them as a Gadol Yisrael, or both of them as, as these giants of uh, of Jewish like knowledge and, and Torah, um, but we're embroiled in this this huge debate. Is there an underlying message you've seen, or is it simply you know they're they're human and they're fallible and they didn't like each other?
2: I think somewhere in between lies the truth. So I'm going to give you um, two answers, not one. The first one we'll deal with is is you know the latter part of your. Your closing remark, which is that they're human. Of course, they're human. People are human. And even if they see themselves as being objective, the vast majority of polemics begin with some kind of preamble in which the author says, You should know, I never get involved in machloikas, and I'm a very reasonable person. And it's never happened before. You know, I've never had an argument with anybody and I've never had any reason to criticise anybody. And I have a very good relationship with everybody I've ever met or known or described or discussed. But in this situation, I want to tell you, I'm left with no choice but to come out with guns blazing because this situation just demands it. OK, now, if I'd see that once in a polemic, that'd be fine. I've seen it dozens of times. The same preamble, different words, different times, different controversy, same words, okay? Different or different, same concept. And every human being wants to see themselves as reasonable. Everybody wants to see themselves as being completely objective and not affected by any bias. And no doubt, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, when he began his battle with Rabbi Ones saw himself as an unbiased, objective individual who's fighting Mechemis Hashem, that he needed to make sure that Rabbonus Nevischitz's influence in the Jewish world was limited because of his Shabbatean leanings. One way or another, that's what he believed. Now, that's from his perspective. From our own perspective, looking at his works, we can see quite clearly that he involved himself deeply in something and believed in it, and clearly, at some point, he was no longer objective. He was very subjective. He was attacked personally. He lost his home. He had to run away to Amsterdam. He was attacked relentlessly. His life was in danger. He lost his livelihood. Obviously, nobody can go through that kind of experience and remain objective. It's just not possible. So yes, they're human beings. From the perspective of a Bjornis he was somebody who was accused of a heinous crime of faith, where he was accused of believing in a version of Kabbalah that was uh, had been perpetuated by Shabtai Tzvi and his followers, clearly that would have been dangerous to him uh, if it was true. There seems a lot of evidence to suggest that in his youth he'd flirted with it. Um, whether or not that continued into his old age, we don't know, but and we have no evidence besides for the evidence presented by Rabbi Yaakov Emden. But uh, believe it or don't believe it, clearly there was suspicion of him and it didn't emanate from nowhere, and Rabbi Yaakov Emden wasn't the only one who believed it. So he had a vested interest in proving Rabbi Yaakov Emden wrong. Whatever you're going to say, he was not objective on that topic because his livelihood and his life depended on it. So here you see two titans, great rabbinic figures, who were totally absorbed in a controversy where they could argue as much as they want that they were being objective, we know, looking at it as, a, uh, you know, outside observers, that that's not possible. So that's the first thing. I'm going to give you other examples in a moment um, of similar circumstances. Uh, one example is the battle between the Vilnagon and Hasidim. There's no question about it. The Vilnagon was a very great man. and He sensed a grave danger in the advent of Hasidism in his home territory to the extent that For the only time in his life, he took a public stance on a communal matter, um, and to the extent that he was listened to or taken seriously, uh, it meant a lot to him. But there's no question about it that, as much as he would have suggested, or anyone might suggest to this day, that he was entirely objective on the matter. Clearly, as outside observers, we can see there was some subjectivity involved. That's—I don't think, by the way. That that's a criticism because I don't think it's ever possible to be entirely objective. We're not robots. We're not machines. What we are as human beings, we have emotions and we know how much the Torah warns us against subjectivity and the Torah expects us to put our best foot forward and yet knows that we are subject to tripping up because of our subjective approach to the matters at hand. That's human. That's totally normal. So that's from that perspective, you know, one must approach any situation, whatever it is, by understanding that human nature is human nature and it doesn't change. It doesn't matter if it was 269 years ago in 1751, or if it was 2000 years ago and it's and bar kamtsam, right? It's, that is the bottom line. We have to know that human beings are human beings. I'm sure that the host at that party with Kamtsam and Bar certainly didn't mean for the Besamiktosh to be destroyed. And yet his uh, offensive behavior um, towards Bar was such that it resulted in the Romans, uh, you know, uh, getting angry with the Jewish Jews of Jerusalem and whatever resulted from that. So human nature is human nature. Now, on the other side, one has to look at some of the issues. Um, I just recently wrote an article about uh, the Satmar Rebbe and his opposition to Zionism. And you know, I'm not going to go into the perspective. I wrote it for Parashas Korach. You can look it up on my website. Um, but essentially, the idea is that Korach was not a Rasha. He was a Tzaddik. And just because he did something objectionable doesn't make him a Rosha. He was punished for it, but it doesn't make him a Russia. Just because the Sat Marebi was opposed to Zionism, and it doesn't matter how many open miracles one can witness with you know, reference to the creation and the perpetuation of the state of Israel, he continued to be anti-Zionist. In fact, in 1968, in the final book that was written in his name, I'm not sure he wrote the whole thing, where he railed against those who suggest that the Six-Day War was miraculous and uh, you know he continued in his vehemence against uh, the zionist entity Uh, you know it's hard to reconcile this with the fact that in every respect he was as you say in the edition he was a tzaddik he he never missed davening in his life he never put anything in his mouth which was even vaguely not kosher he was extremely careful in his benodem l'chavera to the i mean unless you understand that he had enemies and he attacked them. But, you know, when somebody came to visit him, he was extremely kind to them. He was, um, his charitable acts are legendary. He, was, he lived a very frugal life. He, you know, he did, never took any money for himself or glory for himself in that way. And yet he fought with such vehemence and aggression and venom against the Zionist state, against the state of Israel, and against anybody who supported it, and against anybody with whom he disagreed. So, how do you reconcile that with who he was? And I think that you have to understand that, you know, in the same way as Yaakov Emdom was a Tzaddik, and a Talmud Chocham, and a Marbitz Torah, and a Godelbah Torah, Andrew Bionis Nebuchetz was the same, and yet they had this vehement disagreement with each other. One has to, and one shouldn't in any way see them in a negative light simply because they had this human frailty of subjectivity. Similarly with any makhloikas, one has to be open to the fact that people have different opinions, and particularly in this era of great polarization, where the moment somebody disagrees with you, they must be a russia. One should be more circumspect and not judge everybody negatively. And in some ways, I see my role In exposing these Jewish historical episodes as just presenting a kind of different perspective to people, you have to understand these people were great and they did and achieved great things, and yet there was part of them which sometimes erred. Let's call it that. They were not quite as perfect as we would have hoped them to be, but that doesn't diminish their greatness um, in the things that they did that were great and we cannot allow ourselves the liberty. You know, I'm not Rabbi of Emden to criticise Rubionis Neighbourships, and I'm not Rubionis Neighbourships and his supporters to criticise or, you know, denigrate Rubiak of Emden. One can observe the story and know the details and be familiar with every aspect of it without necessarily taking sides.
0: Um, you mentioned before how... History can help us put halacha into its context, um, and that's something that obviously applies to all halachic communities. But looking at history as an area of study, would you say that um, there are differences in the way that modern orthodox communities approach Jewish history to the way that other communities, say Haredi communities, approach the study of history, Jewish history specifically?
2: So I'm going to look at it from a slightly different perspective. I'm going to ask the question in a different way and then answer the question which I asked, not the one that you asked. Um, And which is the study of Torah, does it have historical context depending on which community you come from? So you asked from the perspective of history, I'm asking from the perspective of Torah. And the answer is, if you come from the very Haredi world, you study Gemara, You've got no concept of the fact that, let's say, I, I'll give you some examples. What's the difference between Rebbe and Rabbi Yochanan? How many generations difference is there between Rebbe and Rabbi Yochanan and Shlokish? You don't know, right? Who looks at a Gemara and knows? How many different, how many generations are there between Rabbi Yochanan and and Abaye, Rava and Rav Yosef? Where did they live? So Rebbe and Rabbi Yochan lived in Tzipoyri. Later on, Rabbi moved to Tveria. That became the center of Jewish life. What's the difference between Tsipoiri and Tveria? Where did life go then? So you have Rav Chista and Rabbah. Then you have Rava, Abai, and Rav Yosef. That's the next generation. Okay. What happened is that the center of gravity for, for Torah went from Eret Yisrael to Babel. So, what does that mean? I'm going to give you an example. There's a man called Rav Dimi. Have you ever heard of Rav Dimi? Well, where have you heard of Rav Dimi? Who is Rav Dimi? You always hear of him in one context. He comes from Eret Israel to Babel and he delivers information about what he heard in the name of Rabbi He comes here. I never, the fellow was traveling non stop. It wasn't simple. He went a camel, a donkey. I don't know how he traveled. And he, he would spend, I'm imagining, it must have taken him a couple of weeks to get from Bavel to Tveria. He'd sit in Tveria among the Talmudim of Rabbi Yochanan. And they would tell him this was said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, that was said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. And he comes back to Bavel and he repeats, "Omar Avdimi, you see it, it come, constantly appears, the whole of Shas. Omar Avdimi, and he says over the sum of the name of Rabbi Yochanan or Ishlokish or both, or whatever it is. And then, um, Rava and Habayah and Rabbi Yosef tear him to pieces. The fellows traveled all this way, nonstop there and back. And he comes back and they tear him to pieces. Why? Because the halacha from Bavel is not quite the same as the halacha of Heretz And therefore, just because Rabbi Yochanan said something, that was good for Rabbi Yochanan in Tveria in the previous generation. Now we're in Bavel. Now, if you look at it from a Haredi perspective, or the traditional approach to the Talmud study, they're going to paint it completely in svara. The svara of Rabbi Yochanan was this, and the Svara of Abayn and Rabbi Yosef was that. They never presented you in any kind of historical or geographic context. It's not relevant to them. They're only looking for the Svara. When you see things from a historic perspective, suddenly things change completely. Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi were living at a time, under Roman rule, in, um, in the Golil. Rabbi, for example, had a very good relationship. Rabbi Yosef had a good relationship with the local Roman ruler. And Rabbi Shlokish also seem to have lived in an era where there was no anti-Semitism. But they lived in Eretz Yisrael, So they still, you know, they're influenced by the fact that this is the holy land. This is the country where the Beis Hamikdash was and hopefully will be rebuilt. But then you've got a whole community in Babel, which is a completely different community. And they're catering to different needs. So suddenly the halachas that are relevant in Tveria in the time of Rabbi and Lakish have to be transposed into a community in Bavel, in Surah and Pompadisa. That's a completely different context. Now, if you go to the Haredi community, you know, I, I have these conversations. That's the world I come from. They look at, you know, I, I say, what was the life of Rav Yosef, Abaya and Rava? What was the life of Rav Chista? What was the life of Rava, Ravina? Of Ashi, where, where were they? Where did they live? By the way, all the information is there. But it's glossed over if you study it in the very traditional style. As you go in, in the direction of the modern orthodox world, suddenly these things are being looked at more. So it, you know they'll open up a Gomorrah, not just in the context of the basic facts of the svora or the Limud, but they'll, they'll also look at it in the context of the geographic location and the era in which it was written. I'll give you another example. And, and this, you know, it's important to understand that the Mishnah was written because there was um, a revolution of the Sadducees, of the Tzedukim. That's something else that people need to understand. In the, in the time of the second base Mikdosh, towards the end, now in the month of Av, so it's important for us to know that during this period, there was great controversy and difficulty and fighting between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? So Josephus tells us that they kept all the traditions of, the, of Rabbinic Judaism, going back to the time of Harsinah, what we call Halakha Sinai. What were the origins of these traditions? Josephus doesn't talk about it, but we see it in the Gemara. The Tzedukim said, we don't believe in these traditions. In other words, we don't accept all the baggage that has been gathered up over many generations of you know, cultural development. We want to strip everything away and go back to basics. What does it say in the Torah? The Pharisees, the Purushim said, what are you talking about? These are not things which were invented. These are things which are extremely important. They are core values. These are the core aspects of Judaism but they're fighting against a group of people who say, if it doesn't say it, it doesn't exist. Or if you cannot offer us a logical reason as to why this should be, it doesn't exist. What are the two key aspects of Mishnah and Gemara? There's actually three, I always say, but there's two which are important. The first one is a source text. So every mitzvah is based on either a source text which is some pasuk in the Torah, that's preferable, occasionally in Nevi'im or right? But usually in the Torah. Or a svara. Those are the two sources of Jewish halacha, of, of the halacha of the Jewish faith. Why? Because the Tzedukim are fighting against the perushim, saying, you've got no source for your mitzvahs, for your halacha. And the perushim have to, um, either they have an existing tradition, or they find one, which gives them a basis in the text. They often present the counter-attack of the Tudukim, saying the Tudukim don't say this posok isn't correct, and it's been misinterpreted. They say, we have an interpretation. We have, a, we have the hermeneutical laws which enable us to interpret um, the text of the Torah in such a way that our halacha makes sense. Sometimes it seems very forced. Sometimes, in fact, the Gemara completely dismisses a source text or a svara on the basis that that's not the way we do things. And then they'll say, well, how come we do things in this way? And the Gemara gives um, the equivalent, the literary equivalent of a shoulder shrug. Not quite sure. We don't really know, but that's the way we do things. So nine times out of 10, we'll have a source text or a Svara. But the one time out of 10 that we don't, big deal. The fact that we don't know, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that we don't know it. There's one other source of information as to where halacha comes from. Narrative. Incredibly important. You go into a Mishnah. What's the first Mishnah in Brochus? About um, saying, kriishma shel arvis. When do you say kriishma shel arvis? So according to Rabbi Yezer, it's until when? Until the time that people go to sleep, right? And so if, if nighttime is measured from 6 p.m., to 6 a.m., the first four hours of the night, that's when you have to say Kriyashima. According to Rabban Gamliel, when do you say Kriyashima? Until Amudashacha, which is the whole night, from 6 p.m. till 6 a.m., right? According to um, the Chachomim, when do you say Kriyashima? Until Chatzos. Gamara asks, what are you talking about at Chatzos? Why would you say at Chatzos?" It's either one or the other. Either the night is... Beshoch is the first four hours because it's when you are the act of going to sleep or it's Beshoch when you are sleeping. Ad is an arbitrary time and the Gemara agrees. It is an arbitrary time. Why is it an arbitrary time? Because we want to create a Geder in Halacha to prevent people from not saying Krishma Shema Balaila and if you'd allow them to say it all night they may end up not saying it at all because they've fallen asleep. So we don't agree with Rabbi Yezer and we do agree with Rabban Gamliel, but we want to create an additional measure. Now, let's go back to the Mishnah. What does the Mishnah do? It's the first Mishnah in the Talmud. The Mishnah says there's a story. Rabban Gamliel's children went to a party and they came back. It was after Chatzais, but it was before Muda Shacha. What's the aloha? The haloha is we follow Rabban Gamliel. It's Bediyeved, but we follow Rabban Gamliel. We have a source of information for haloha, which is based on narrative. That means if we have a historical episode where we can see that this is the way Chazal observed halacha, even if we don't have the source text, and even if we don't have a svarah, the narrative in and of itself will be sufficient information on which to base halacha. Suddenly we see how important history is. The fact that I know that this is the way a great rabbi clearly wouldn't have done something against halacha. Observes halacha? I know that's the way to observe halacha. Why? I have no idea. I've never saw the tshuva and he never explained it to me. But that's the way I observe halacha because we have a narrative to prove it. So you see here the basis of halacha is first of all based on history, the battle between the Tidukim and the pirushim. The whole concept of the Talmud being written down was to create a foundation for Jewish law that would undermine the argument of the tzidukim. And at the same time, we see that narrative in and of itself is a basis for halachic observance.
1: If part of the basis of of learning Jewish history is um, to establish this narrative, um, if we view learning history as part of Limba Torah, how much weight then do we give to historical fact? Do we have to be able to, you know, footnote everything, you know, where we saw this, that all the, as you, you know, do you have to be able to find, you know, an explicit mention of of an historical event, or, um, or or does it matter? As in, you know, the stories in the Gemara, the you know the various agadas um, that come up, does it matter if they're historically factual, or you know, the story is there to sort of uh, serve as a a um, a, a storytelling device that allows us to base our practice on something, a narrative. So
2: the, the Gemara itself dismisses some stories as not having been plausible on more than one occasion. Um, the Ramban, in his argument in defense of Judaism against Pablo Cristiani in his famous um, debate in front of the king, dismissed Midrashim said we don't have to take Midrashim seriously so don't try and undermine Judaism by citing Midrashim. So clearly there is an ambivalence even in traditional sources to the accuracy of some of the narratives. Um, I think from our own perspective we know that many of the publications with reference to great rabbinic figures have been hagiographic to the extent that it's sometimes difficult to tell the difference between the stories about one and the stories about the other um, because they're almost identical. You know, they were all born geniuses. and By the age of three, they knew you know, uh, Tanakh Balpère and Shas Balpère at the age of six. And it, really, come on, okay? So I'm not saying that it's not true that they were very sweet children. They were wonderful children, and but they grew like everybody else grew, and at some stage, They were very devoted to learning, more than the average kid, and very devoted to to issues of faith, and and they grew into the great people they became, and that's fine. So, you know, I I also think that, um, particularly in the Hasidic world, but it's not exclusive at all to the Hasidic world, this idea that um, great and miraculous things happen to their, or as a result of their uh, leaders, um, is part and parcel of promoting the brand so how seriously you can take any of these narratives is up for debate and I'll add that particularly when things happen which um, could be interpreted negatively they'll always put a positive spin on it because it's again serves the brand that that's on the negative side of the equation I think that if one is able through history to make a particular case about something. Um, and certainly in Psaq Locha, this is extremely important. If you can, I, I mean, I'll give you an example that's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's very well known to, to the people who are listening to this, probably. And that is treles. I mentioned that we began talking about Rabbi Herzog. Rabbi Herzog wrote his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation in the Sorbonne um, about Tcheles. And he eventually... Um, Believed it was tranquil what, tr- what is called it's so, a m- the murex trunculus, mur- trunculus stuff. snail, whatever it is, uh, as opposed to uh, the squid or whatever it was that Azina had imagined it was a cuttlefish, um, and the reason why that made a lot of sense ultimately is because we we have found um, in archaeological digs huge collections of these snail shells which seems to indicate that they were used for creating dye and it would make a lot of sense therefore that this was something that was in common use at that time, fell out of use which is why we forgot how to make tcheles and now we've rediscovered it. So there you have the uh, and I don't think anybody can disagree with it, it may be that people don't want to wear tcheles because they don't want to change their particular a mess- which is we don't wear tailles until such time as Mashir comes and tells us for sure that it's tailles but for those people who say that you can wear it and you should wear it they've got very good leg to stand on because we've discovered you we have these archaeological digs which, where we've discovered these shells um, and there's strong indication even in in other um, sources that this was the um, this was what was used to create this particular color of dye. You just read up on it, you know it's a fact. So I think that good historical research is another tool that we have in our box uh, to find the details of halacha and Jewish observance. I'll give you another example. Um, this is fascinating, actually. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, I don't know if you know, they discovered in Qumran, tefillin, do you know that? They found, you know, that there's different types of the order of the parshias and tefillin differs according to Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. That's usually the way it's divided. Although obviously they base themselves on something which came earlier, but they, there's a different order. We generally Ashkenazi Jews wear Rashi tefillin. Um, Rabbeinu Tam tefillin, although he was Rashi's grandson, is uh, generally worn as a second pair of tefillin by Chassidim and people who are followers of the Nusakh of the Ari. In Qumran, they discovered both versions. That means the parashis of Tvilin written in the order that Rashi said and in the order that Rabbeinu Tam said. What does that tell you? That it wasn't a machloikas of Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. That this was a pre-existing, I will not say controversy, but a pre-existing debate as to whether or not Tefillin should be written in this way or that way. So suddenly, the makhloikas the between Rashi and Rabbi Tam takes a whole new context, has a whole new context. That's fascinating. Now if, now, if you just look at things in a sort of bland, one-dimensional way, you'll just say, okay, I'm Ashkenaz, I wear Rashi. Okay, I'm a chosid, I have to put on a... No, no, this is something that is fundamental within Judaism going back more than 2,000 years. The, the Qumran library, was something that began to be accumulated 2,200 years ago, or thereabouts. Can You see what's going on here? The Tefillin, the controversy about Tefillin, is something that cuts to the heart of Jewish tradition, dating back to the time of the Qumran sectarians. Amazing, absolutely amazing. So I think that Jewish history creates an exciting backdrop to everything that we do as Jews, we're not doing it as Jews because we come from Germany, or Hungary, or Yemen, or Iraq, or Morocco. We're Jews because we come from the people who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and said, and generation after generation, and epoch after epoch, we have continued to devote ourselves and dedicate ourselves to the perpetuation of Jewish life. Wherever we were in exile, now we come back to Eretz Yisrael, We have this incredible tapestry of tradition and history on which we can base ourselves as Jews. doesn't matter where you live or who you are right now. You are walking in the shadow of history that stretches back all the way to Mount Sinai. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh,
0: Really, really amazing. I think on on, on that note, that might be a good note uh, just to just to end on, though I think everything we've discussed we can probably unpack even further. And obviously, for those that want to know more about some of the stories and topics that have come up, you can find them in um, Rabbi Dunner's book, Mavericks, Mystics, the False Messiahs, and also in his uh, other book. What's, what's the title of the new book, Rabbi?
2: It's, Hayashar, uh, it's, it's in Hebrew, and it's available in all good bookstores. By the way, if you go into a bookstore, and they don't have it. Do you know what that means? It's not a good book.
0: <laughs> Seems like a fair analysis. No comment. <laughs> um, so so yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's been really great to have you on the podcast. And uh, we hope you can join us again in the future. Whenever you ask. Well, that's it for another great episode of the Quorum Podcast. Alex, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, how can they do so?
1: You can find us uh, across all social media. Or you can be in touch via email podcast at karenpub.com if you want to get 10% off your next order from karenpub.com you can use promo code podcast at checkout Uh, please make sure to leave us a rating and a review wherever you're listening and we look forward to seeing you next time
0: and don't forget that your order from the Koran website should also include rabbi dunner's book mavericks mystics and false messiahs which is an incredible book full of fascinating and entertaining stories from throughout jewish history Until next time, this has been The Corinne Podcast. Bye for now.